Chapter Two, Part Three of the Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844 by Friedrich Engels. Chapter Two, The Great Towns. The new town, known also as Irish Town, stretches up a hill of clay beyond the old town between the Irk and St. George's Road here all the features of a city are lost single rows of houses or groups of streets stand here and there like little villages on the naked not even grass-grown clay soil the houses or rather cottages are in bad order never repaired filthy with damp unclean cellar dwellings the lanes are neither paved nor supplied with sewers but harbour numerous colonies of swine penned in small styes or yards or wandering unrestrained through the neighbourhood the mud in the streets is so deep that there is never a chance except in the driest weather of walking without sinking into it ankle-deep at every step in the vicinity of st george's road the separate groups of buildings approach each other more closely ending in a continuation of lanes blind alleys back lanes and courts which grow more and more crowded and irregular the nearer they approach the heart of the town true they are here oftener paved or supplied with paved sidewalks and gutters but the filth, the bad order of the houses, and especially of the cellars, remains the same. It may not be out of place to make some general observations just here as to the customary construction of working men's quarters in Manchester. We have seen how in the old town pure accident determined the grouping of the houses in general. Every house is built without reference to any other, and the scraps of space between them are called courts for want of another name. In the somewhat newer portions of the same quarter, and in other working men's quarters, dating from the early days of industrial activity, a somewhat more orderly arrangement may be found. The space between two streets is divided into more regular, usually square courts. These courts were built in this way from the beginning, and communicate with the streets by means of covered passages. If the totally planless construction is injurious to the health of the workers by preventing ventilation, this method of shutting them up in courts surrounded on all sides by buildings is far more so the air simply cannot escape the chimneys of the houses are the sole drains for the imprisoned atmosphere of the courts and they serve the purpose only so long as fire is kept burning moreover the houses surrounding such courts are usually built back to back having the rear wall in common and this alone suffices to prevent any sufficient through ventilation and, as the police charged with the care of the streets does not trouble itself about the condition of these courts, as everything else quietly lies where it is thrown, there is no cause for wonder at the filth and heaps of ashes and offal to be found here. I have been in courts in Miller's Street, at least half a foot below the level of the thoroughfares, and without the slightest drainage for the water that accumulates in them in rainy weather. More recently another different method of building was adopted, and has now become general. Working-men's cottages are almost never built singly, but always by the dozen or score, a single contractor building up one or two streets at a time. These are then arranged as follows. One front is formed of cottages of the best class, so fortunate as to possess a back door and small court, and these command the highest rent. In the rear of these cottages runs a narrow alley, the back street built up at both ends, into which either a narrow roadway or a covered passage leads from one side. The cottages which face this back street command least rent, and are most neglected. 
these have their rear walls in common with the third row of cottages which face a second street and command less rent than the first row and more than the second by this method of construction comparatively good ventilation can be obtained for the first row of cottages and the third row is no worse off than in the former method the middle row on the other hand is at least as badly ventilated as the houses in the courts and the back street is always in the same filthy disgusting condition as they the contractors prefer this method because it saves them space and furnishes the means of fleecing better paid workers through the higher rents of the cottages in the first and third rows these three different forms of cottage building are found all over manchester and throughout lancashire and yorkshire often mixed up together but usually separate enough to indicate the relative age of parts of towns the third system that of the back alleys prevails largely in the great workingmen's district east of st george's road and ancote street and is the one most often found in the other workingmen's quarters of manchester and its suburbs in the last mentioned broad district included under the name ancotes stand the largest mills of manchester lining the canals colossal six and seven-storied buildings towering with their slender chimneys far above the low cottages of the workers the population of the district consists therefore chiefly of mill-hands and in the worst streets of hand-weavers the streets nearest the heart of the town are the oldest and consequently the worst they are however paved and supplied with drains among them i include those nearest to and parallel with oldham road and great ancote street farther to the northeast lie many newly built up streets here the cottages look neat and cleanly doors and windows are new and freshly painted the rooms within newly whitewashed the streets themselves are better aired the vacant building lots between them larger and more numerous but this can be said of a minority of the houses only while cellar dwellings are to be found under almost every cottage many streets are unpaved and without sewers and worse than all this neat appearance is all pretense a pretense which vanishes within the first ten years for the construction of the cottages individually is no less to be condemned than the plan of the streets all such cottages look neat and substantial at first their massive brick walls deceive the eye and on passing through a newly built working-men's street without remembering the back alleys and the construction of the houses themselves one is inclined to agree with the assertion of the liberal manufacturers that the working population is nowhere so well housed as in england but on closer examination it becomes evident that the walls of these cottages are as thin as it is possible to make them the outer walls those of the cellar which bear the weight of the ground floor and roof are one whole brick thick at most the bricks lying with their long sides touching but i have seen many a cottage of the same height some in process of building whose outer walls were but one half brick thick the bricks not lying sideways but lengthwise their narrow ends touching the object of this is to spare material but there is also another reason for it namely the fact that the contractors never own the land but lease it according to the english custom for twenty thirty forty fifty or ninety-nine years at the expiration of which time it falls with everything upon it back into the possession of the original holder who pays nothing in return for improvements upon it the improvements are therefore so calculated by the lessee as to be worth as little as possible at the expiration of the stipulated term and as such cottages are often built but twenty or thirty years before the expiration of the term it may easily be imagined that the contractors make no unnecessary expenditures upon them moreover these contractors usually carpenters and builders or manufacturers spend little or nothing in repairs 
partly to avoid diminishing their rent receipts, and partly in view of the approaching surrender of the improvement to the landowner. While in consequence of commercial crises and the loss of work that follows them, whole streets often stand empty, the cottages falling rapidly into ruin and uninhabitableness. It is calculated in general that working men's cottages last only forty years on the average. This sounds strangely enough when one sees the beautiful mass of walls of newly built ones, which seem to give promise of lasting a couple of centuries. But the fact remains that the niggardliness of the original expenditure, the neglect of all repairs, the frequent periods of emptiness, the constant change of inhabitants, and the destruction carried on by the dwellers during the final ten years, usually Irish families, who do not hesitate to use the wooden portions for firewood, all this taken together accomplishes the complete ruin of the cottages by the end of forty years. Hence it comes that Ancoats, built chiefly since the sudden growth of manufacture, chiefly indeed within the present century, contains a vast number of ruinous houses, most of them being, in fact, in the last stages of inhabitableness. I will not dwell upon the amount of capital thus wasted, the small additional expenditure upon the original improvement, and upon repairs which would suffice to keep this whole district clean, decent, and inhabitable for years together. I have to deal here with the state of the houses and their inhabitants, and it must be admitted that no more injurious and demoralizing method of housing the workers has yet been discovered than precisely this. The working-man is constrained to occupy such ruinous dwellings because he cannot pay for others, and because there are no others in the vicinity of his mill. Perhaps, too, because they belong to the employer, who engages him only on condition of his taking such a cottage. The calculation with reference to the forty years' duration of the cottage is, of course, not always perfectly strict, for if the dwellings are in a thickly built-up portion of the town, and there is a good prospect of finding steady occupants for them, while the ground-rent is high, the contractors do a little something to keep the cottages inhabitable after the expiration of the forty years. They never do anything more, however, than is absolutely unavoidable, and the dwellings so repaired are the worst of all. Occasionally, when an epidemic threatens, the otherwise sleepy conscience of the sanitary police is a little stirred. Raids are made into the working men's districts, whole rows of cellars and cottages are closed, as happened in the case of several lanes near Oldham Road. But this does not last long. The condemned cottages soon find occupants again, the owners are much better off by letting them, and the sanitary police won't come again so soon. These east and northeast sides of Manchester are the only ones on which the bourgeoisie has not built, because ten or eleven months of the year the west and south-west wind drives the smoke of all the factories hither, and that the working people alone may breathe. Southward from Great Ancote Street lies a great, straggling working-men's quarter, a hilly, barren stretch of land occupied by detached, irregularly built rows of houses or squares, between these empty building lots, uneven, clayey, without grass, and scarcely passable in wet weather. The cottages are all filthy and old, and recall the new town to mind. The stretch cut through by the Birmingham Railway is the most thickly built up, and the worst. Here flows the Medlock, with countless windings through a valley, which is in places on a level with the valley of the Irk. Along both sides of the stream, which is coal-black, stagnant, and foul, stretches a broad belt of factories and working-men's dwellings, the latter all in the worst condition. The bank is chiefly declivitous, and is built over to the water's edge, just as we saw along the Irk, while the houses are equally bad, whether built on the Manchester side or in Ardwick, Trollton, or Hulme. 
but the most horrible spot if i should describe all the separate spots in detail i should never come to the end lies on the manchester side immediately southwest of oxford road and is known as little ireland in a rather deep hole in a curve of the medlock and surrounded on all four sides by tall factories and high embankments covered with buildings stand two groups of about two hundred cottages built chiefly back to back in which live about four thousand human beings most of them irish the cottages are old dirty and of the smallest sort the streets uneven fallen into ruts and in part without drains or pavement masses of refuse awful and sickening filth lie among standing pools in all directions the atmosphere is poisoned by the effluvia from these and laden and darkened by the smoke of a dozen tall factory chimneys a horde of ragged women and children swarm about here as filthy as the swine that thrive upon the garbage heaps and in the puddles in short the whole rookery furnishes such a hateful and repulsive spectacle as can hardly be equalled in the worst court on the irk the race that lives in these ruinous cottages, behind broken windows, mended with oilskin, sprung doors and rotten doorposts, or in dark, wet cellars, in measureless filth and stench, in this atmosphere penned in as if with a purpose, this race must really have reached the lowest stage of humanity. This is the impression and the line of thought which the exterior of this district forces upon the beholder. But what must one think when he hears that in each of these pens, containing at most two rooms, a garret and perhaps a cellar on the average twenty human beings live that in the whole region for each one hundred and twenty persons one usually inaccessible privy is provided and that in spite of all the preachings of the physicians in spite of the excitement into which the cholera epidemic plunged the sanitary police by reason of the condition of little ireland in spite of everything in this year of grace eighteen forty four it is in almost the same state as in eighteen thirty one Dr. K. asserts that not only the cellars, but the first floors of all the houses in this district are damp, that a number of cellars once filled up with earth have now been emptied and are occupied once more by Irish people, that in one cellar the water constantly wells up through a hole stopped with clay, the cellar lying below the river level, so that its occupant, a hand-loom weaver, had to bail out the water from his dwelling every morning and pour it into the street. Farther down on the left side of the Medlock lies Hulm, which, properly speaking, is one great working people's district, the condition of which coincides almost exactly with that of Ancoats, the more thickly built-up regions chiefly bad and approaching ruin, the less populous of more modern structure, but generally sunk in filth. On the other side of the Medlock, in Manchester proper, lies a second great workingman's district, which stretches on both sides of Deansgate as far as the business quarter and in certain parts rivals the old town. Especially in the immediate vicinity of the business quarter, between Bridge and Key Streets, Princess and Peter Streets, the crowded construction exceeds in places the narrowest courts of the old town. Here are long, narrow lanes between which run contracted, crooked courts and passages, the entrances to which are so irregular that the explorer is caught in a blind alley at every few steps, or comes out where he least expects to, unless he knows every court and every alley exactly and separately. According to Dr. K., the most demoralized class of all Manchester lived in these ruinous and filthy districts, people whose occupations are thieving and prostitution, and to all appearance his assertion is still true at the present moment. When the sanitary police made its expedition hither in 1831, 
it found the uncleanness as great as in little ireland or along the irk that it is not much better to-day i can testify and among other items they found in parliament street for three hundred and eighty persons and in parliament passage for thirty thickly populated houses but a single privy if we cross the irwell to salford we find on a peninsula formed by the river a town of eighty thousand inhabitants which properly speaking is one large workingmen's quarter penetrated by a single wide avenue salford once more important than manchester was then the leading town of the surrounding district to which it still gives its name salford hundred hence it is that an old and therefore very unwholesome dirty and ruinous locality is to be found here lying opposite the old church of manchester and in as bad a condition as the old town on the other side of the irwell farther away from the river lies the newer portion which is however already beyond the limit of its forty years of cottage life and therefore ruinous enough all salford is built in courts or narrow lanes so narrow that they remind me of the narrowest i have ever seen the little lanes of genoa the average construction of salford is in this respect much worse than that of manchester and so too in respect to cleanliness if in manchester the police from time to time every six or ten years makes a raid upon the working people's districts closes the worst dwellings and causes the filthiest spots in these augean stables to be cleansed in salford it seems to have done absolutely nothing the narrow side lanes and courts of chapel street greengate and gravel lane have certainly never been cleansed since they were built of late the liverpool railway has been carried through the middle of them over a high viaduct and has abolished many of the filthiest nooks but what does that avail whoever passes over this viaduct and looks down sees filth and wretchedness enough and if any one takes the trouble to pass through these lanes and glance through the open doors and windows into the houses and cellars he can convince himself afresh with every step that the workers of salford live in dwellings in which cleanliness and comfort are impossible exactly the same state of affairs is found in the more distant regions of salford in islington along regent road and back of the bolton railway the workingmen's dwellings between oldfield road and cross lane where a mass of courts and alleys are to be found in the worst possible state vie with the dwellings of the old town in filth and overcrowding in this district i found a man apparently about sixty years old living in a cow stable he had constructed a sort of chimney for his square pen which had neither windows floor nor ceiling had obtained a bedstead and lived there though the rain dripped through his rotten roof this man was too old and weak for regular work and supported himself by removing manure with a hand-cart the dung-heaps lay next door to his palace such are the various working people's quarters of manchester as i had occasion to observe them personally during twenty months if we briefly formulate the result of our wanderings we must admit that three hundred and fifty thousand working people of manchester and its environs live almost all of them in wretched damp filthy cottages that the streets which surround them are usually in the most miserable and filthy condition laid out without the slightest reference to ventilation with reference solely to the profit secured by the contractor in a word we must confess that in the workingmen's dwellings of manchester no cleanliness no convenience and consequently no comfortable family life is possible that in such dwellings only a physically degenerate race robbed of all humanity degraded reduced morally and physically to bestiality could feel comfortable and at home and i am not alone in making this assertion we have seen that dr k gives precisely the same description and though it is superfluous 
I quote further the words of a liberal, recognized and highly valued as an authority by the manufacturers, and a fanatical opponent of all independent movements of the workers. Quote, as I passed through the dwellings of the mill-hands in Irish Town, Ancoats, and Little Ireland, I was only amazed that it is possible to maintain a reasonable state of health in such homes. These towns, for in extent and number of inhabitants they are towns, have been erected with the utmost disregard of everything except the immediate advantage of the speculating builder. A carpenter and builder unite to buy a series of building sites, that is, they lease them for a number of years, and cover them with so-called houses. In one place we found a whole street following the course of a ditch, because in this way deeper cellars could be secured without the cost of digging, cellars not for storing wares or rubbish, but for dwellings for human beings. Not one house of this street escaped the cholera. In general, the streets of these suburbs are unpaved, with a dung-heap or ditch in the middle. The houses are built back to back, without ventilation or drainage, and whole families are limited to a corner of a cellar or a garret." I have already referred to the unusual activity which the sanitary police manifested during the cholera visitation. When the epidemic was approaching, a universal terror seized the bourgeoisie of the city. People remembered the unwholesome dwellings of the poor, and trembled before the certainty that each of these slums would become a centre for the plague, whence it would spread desolation in all directions through the houses of the propertied class. A health commission was appointed at once to investigate these districts, and report upon their condition to the town council. Dr. K., himself a member of this commission, who visited in person every separate police district except one, the eleventh, quotes extracts from their reports. There were inspected in all 6,951 houses, naturally in Manchester proper alone, Salford and the other suburbs being excluded. Of these, 6,565 urgently needed whitewashing within. 960 were out of repair, 939 had insufficient drains, 1,435 were damp, 452 were badly ventilated, 2,221 were without privies. Of the 687 streets inspected, 248 were unpaved, 53 but partially paved, 112 ill-ventilated, 352 containing standing pools, heaps of debris, refuse, etc. To cleanse such an Augean stable before the arrival of the cholera was, of course, out of the question. A few of the worst nooks were therefore cleansed, and everything else left as before. In the cleansed spots, as Little Ireland proves, the old filthy condition was naturally restored in a couple of months. As to the internal condition of these houses, the same commission reports a state of things similar to that which we have already met with in London, Edinburgh, and other cities. It often happens that a whole Irish family is crowded into one bed. Often a heap of filthy straw or quilts of old sacking cover all in an indiscriminate heap, where all alike are degraded by want, stolidity, and wretchedness. Often the inspectors found in a single house two families in two rooms all slept in one, and used the other as a kitchen and dining-room in common. Often more than one family lived in a single damp cellar, in whose pestilent atmosphere twelve to sixteen persons were crowded together. To these and other sources of disease must be added that pigs were kept, and other disgusting things of the most revolting kind were found. We must add that many families, who had but one room for themselves, received boarders and lodgers in it, 
that such lodgers of both sexes by no means rarely sleep in the same bed with the married couple, and that the single case of a man and his wife and his adult sister-in-law sleeping in one bed was found, according to the, quote, report concerning the sanitary condition of the working class, end quote, six times repeated in Manchester. Common lodging-houses, too, are very numerous. Dr. K. gives their number in 1831 at 267 in Manchester proper, and they must have increased greatly since then. Each of these receives from twenty to thirty guests, so that they shelter all told, nightly, from five to seven thousand human beings. The character of the houses and their guests is the same as in other cities. Five to seven beds in each room lie on the floor, without bedsteads, and on these sleep, mixed indiscriminately, as many persons as apply. What physical and moral atmosphere reigns in these holes I need not state. Each of these houses is a focus of crime, the scene of deeds against which human nature revolts, which would perhaps never have been executed but for this forced centralization of vice. Gaskell gives the number of persons living in cellars in Manchester proper as twenty thousand. The weekly dispatch gives the number, quote, according to official reports, end quote, as twelve percent of the working class, which agrees with Gaskell's number. The workers being estimated at 175,000, 21,000 would form 12% of it. The cellar dwellings in the suburbs are at least as numerous, so that the number of persons living in cellars in Manchester, using its name in the broader sense, is not less than 40 to 50,000. So much for the dwellings of the workers in the largest cities and towns. The manner in which the need of a shelter is satisfied furnishes a standard for the manner in which all other necessities are supplied that in these filthy holes a ragged, ill-fed population alone can dwell is a safe conclusion, and such is the fact. The clothing of the working people in the majority of cases is in a very bad condition. The material used for it is not of the best adapted. Wool and linen have almost vanished from the wardrobe of both sexes, and cotton has taken their place. Shirts are made of bleached or coloured cotton goods. The dresses of the women are chiefly of cotton print goods, and woolen petticoats are rarely to be seen on the wash-line. The men wear chiefly trousers of fustian or other heavy cotton goods, and jackets or coats of the same. Fustian has become the proverbial costume of the working men, who are called quote-unquote fustian jackets, and call themselves so in contrast to the gentlemen who wear broadcloth, which latter words are used as characteristic for the middle class. When Fergus O'Connor, the Chartist leader, came to Manchester during the insurrection of 1842, he appeared, amidst the deafening applause of the working men, in a fustian suit of clothing. Hats are the universal head-covering in England, even for working men, hats of the most diverse forms, round, high, broad-brimmed, narrow-brimmed, or without brims, only the younger men in factory towns wearing caps. Anyone who does not own a hat folds himself a low, square paper cap. The whole clothing of the working class, even assuming it to be in good condition, is little adapted to the climate. The damp air of England, with its sudden changes of temperature, more calculated than any other to give rise to colds, obliges almost the whole middle class to wear flannel next the skin, about the body, and flannel scarves and shirts are in almost universal use. Not only is the working class deprived of this precaution, it is scarcely ever in a position to use a thread of woollen clothing, and the heavy cotton goods, though thicker, stiffer, and heavier than woollen clothes, affords much less protection against cold and wet, remain damp much longer because of their thickness and the nature of the stuff, and have nothing of the compact density of fulled woolen cloths. 
and if a working-man once buys himself a woollen coat for Sunday, he must get it from one of the cheap shops where he finds bad, so-called, devil's dust cloth, manufactured for sale and not for use, and liable to tear or grow threadbare in a fortnight, or he must buy of an old clothes-dealer a half-worn coat, which has seen its best days, and lasts but a few weeks. Moreover, the working-man's clothing is, in most cases, in bad condition, and there is the oft-recurring necessity for placing the best pieces in the pawnbroker's shop. But among very large numbers, especially among the Irish, the prevailing clothing consists of perfect rags often beyond all mending, or so patched that the original colour can no longer be detected. Yet the English and Anglo-Irish go on patching, and have carried this art to a remarkable pitch, putting wool or bagging on fustian, or the reverse, it's all the same to them." but the true, transplanted Irish hardly ever patch, except in the extremest necessity, when the garment would otherwise fall apart. Ordinarily the rags of the shirt protrude through the rents in the coat or trousers. They wear, as Thomas Carlyle says, quote, a suit of tatters, the getting on or off which is said to be a difficult operation, transacted only in festivals and the high tides of the calendar." End quote. The Irish have introduced, too, the custom previously unknown in England of going barefoot. In every manufacturing town there is now to be seen a multitude of people, especially women and children, going about barefoot, and their example is gradually being adopted by the poorer English. As with clothing, so with food. The workers get what is too bad for the property-holding class. In the great towns of England everything may be had of the best, but it costs money and the workman, who must keep house on a couple of pence, cannot afford much expense. Moreover, he usually receives his wages on Saturday evening, for although a beginning has been made in the payment of wages on Friday, this excellent arrangement is by no means universal, and so he comes to market at five or even seven o'clock, while the buyers of the middle class have had the first choice during the morning, when the market teems with the best of everything. But when the workers reach it, the best has vanished, and if it was still there, they would probably not be able to buy it. The potatoes which the workers buy are usually poor, the vegetables wilted, the cheese old and of poor quality, the bacon rancid, the meat lean, tough, taken from old, often diseased cattle, or such as have died a natural death, and not fresh even then, often half decayed. The sellers are usually small hucksters who buy up inferior goods, and can sell them cheaply by reason of their badness. The poorest workers are forced to use still another device to get together the things they need with their few pence. As nothing can be sold on Sunday, and all shops must be closed at twelve o'clock on Saturday night, such things as would not keep until Monday are sold at any price between ten o'clock and midnight. But nine-tenths of what is sold at ten o'clock is past using by Sunday morning, yet these are precisely the provisions which make up the Sunday dinner of the poorest class. The meat which the workers buy is very often past using, but having bought it, they must eat it. And on the 6th of January, 1844, if I am not greatly mistaken, a court leet was held in Manchester, when eleven meat-sellers were fined for having sold tainted meat. Each of them had a whole ox or pig, or several sheep, or from fifty to sixty pounds of meat, which were all confiscated in a tainted condition. In one case, sixty-four stuffed Christmas geese were seized, which had proved unsaleable in Liverpool, and had been forwarded to Manchester, where they were brought to market, foul and rotten. All the particulars, with names and fines, were published at the time in the Manchester Guardian. 
In the six weeks, from July 1st to August 14th, the same sheet reported three similar cases. According to the Guardian, for August 3rd, a pig weighing 200 pounds, which had been found dead and decayed, was cut up and exposed for sale by a butcher at Haywood, and was then seized. According to the number for July 31st, two butchers at Wigan, of whom one had previously been convicted of the same offence, were fined two pounds and four pounds respectively, for exposing tainted meat for sale. And according to the number for August 10th, twenty-six tainted hams seized at a dealer's in Bolton were publicly burnt, and the dealer fined twenty shillings. But these are by no means all the cases. They do not even form a fair average for a period of six weeks, according to which to form an average for the year. There are often seasons in which every number of the semi-weekly guardian mentions a similar case found in Manchester or its vicinity. There are often seasons in which every number of the semi-weekly guardian mentions a similar case found in Manchester or its vicinity. And when one reflects upon the many cases which must escape detection in the extensive markets that stretch along the front of every main street, under the slender supervision of the market inspectors, and how else can one explain the boldness with which whole animals are exposed for sale, when one considers how great the temptation must be, in view of the incomprehensibly small fines mentioned in the foregoing cases, when one reflects what condition a piece of meat must have reached to be seized by the inspectors, it is impossible to believe that the workers obtain good and nourishing meat as a usual thing. But they are victimized in yet another way by the money-greed of the middle class. Dealers and manufacturers adulterate all kinds of provisions in an atrocious manner, and without the slightest regard to the health of the consumers. We have heard the Manchester Guardian upon this subject. Let us hear another organ of the middle class. I delight in the testimony of my opponents. Let us hear the Liverpool Mercury. Quote, Salted butter is sold for fresh, the lumps being covered with a coating of fresh butter, or a pound of fresh being laid on top to taste, while the salted article is sold after this test, or the whole mass is washed and then sold as fresh. With sugar, pounded rice and other cheap adulterating materials are mixed, and the whole sold at full price. The refuse of soap-boiling establishments also is mixed with other things and sold as sugar. Chicory and other cheap stuff is mixed with ground coffee, and artificial coffee beans with the unground article. Cocoa is often adulterated with fine brown earth, treated with fat to render it more easily mistakable for real cocoa. Tea is mixed with the leaves of the sloe and with other refuse, or dry tea-leaves are roasted on hot copper plates, so returning to the proper colour and being sold as fresh. Pepper is mixed with pounded nutshells. Port wine is manufactured outright out of alcohol, dye-stuffs, etc., while it is notorious that more of it is consumed in England alone than is grown in Portugal. And tobacco is mixed with disgusting substances of all sorts, and in all possible forms in which the article is produced." I can add that several of the most respected tobacco-dealers in Manchester announced publicly last summer that, by reason of the universal adulteration of tobacco, no firm could carry on business without adulteration, and that no cigar costing less than threepence is made wholly from tobacco. These frauds are naturally not restricted to articles of food, though I could mention a dozen more, the villainy of mixing gypsum or chalk with flour among them. Fraud is practised in the sale of articles of every sort, flannel, stockings, etc., are stretched and shrink after the first washing. Narrow cloth is sold as being from one and a half to three inches broader than it actually is. Stoneware is so thinly glazed 
that the glazing is good for nothing and cracks at once, and a hundred other rascalities, tout comme chez nous. But the lion's share of the evil results of these frauds falls to the workers. The rich are less deceived because they can pay the high prices of the large shops which have a reputation to lose, and would injure themselves more than their customers if they kept poor or adulterated wares. The rich are spoiled too by habitual good eating, and detect adulteration more easily with their sensitive palates. But the poor, the working people, to whom a couple of farthings are important, who must buy many things with little money, who cannot afford to inquire too closely into the quality of their purchases, and cannot do so in any case because they have had no opportunity of cultivating their taste, to their share fall all the adulterated, poisoned provisions. They must deal with the small retailers, must buy perhaps on credit, and these small retail dealers, who cannot sell even the same quality of goods so cheaply as the largest retailers, because of their small capital and the large proportional expenses of their business, must knowingly or unknowingly buy adulterated goods in order to sell at the lower prices required, and to meet the competition of the others. Further, a large retail dealer who has extensive capital invested in his business is ruined with his ruined credit if detected in a fraudulent practice, but what harm does it do a small grocer who has customers in a single street only if frauds are proved against him? If no one trusts him in Ancoats, he moves to Trollton or Hulm, where no one knows him and where he continues to defraud as before, while legal penalties attach to very few adulterations unless they involve revenue frauds. Not in the quality alone, but in the quantity of his goods as well, is the English workingman defrauded. The small dealers usually have false weights and measures, and an incredible number of convictions for such offences may be read in the police reports. How universal this form of fraud is in the manufacturing districts, a couple of extracts from the Manchester Guardian may serve to show. They cover only a short period, and even here I have not all the numbers at hand. Guardian, June 16, 1844, Rockdale Sessions. Four dealers fined five to ten shillings for using light weights. Stockport Sessions. Two dealers fined one shilling, one of them having seven light weights and a false scale, and both having been warned. Guardian, June 19, Rockdale Sessions. One dealer fined five, and two farmers ten shillings. Guardian, June 22, Manchester Justices of the Peace. Nineteen dealers fined two shillings and sixpence to two pounds. Guardian, June 26, Ashton Sessions. Fourteen dealers and farmers fined two shillings and sixpence to one pound. Hyde Petty Sessions. Nine farmers and dealers condemned to pay costs and five shillings fines. Guardian, July 9, Manchester. Sixteen dealers condemned to pay costs and fines not exceeding ten shillings. Guardian, July 13, Manchester. Nine dealers fined from two shillings and sixpence to twenty shillings. Guardian, July 24, Rockdale. Four dealers fined ten to twenty shillings. Guardian, July 27, Bolton. Twelve dealers and innkeepers condemned to pay costs. Guardian, August 3, Bolton. Three dealers fined two shillings and sixpence and five shillings. Guardian, August 10, Bolton. One dealer fined five shillings and the same causes which make the working-class the chief sufferers from frauds in the quality of goods make them the usual victims of frauds in the question of quantity, too. The habitual food of the individual working-man naturally varies according to his wages. The better-paid workers, especially those in whose families every member is able to earn something, have good food as long as this state of things lasts, 
meat daily and bacon and cheese for supper. Where wages are less, meat is used only two or three times a week, and the proportion of bread and potatoes increases. Descending gradually, we find the animal food reduced to a small piece of bacon cut up with the potatoes. Lower still, even this disappears, and there remain only bread, cheese, porridge, and potatoes, until on the lowest round of the ladder, among the Irish, potatoes form the sole food. And as an accompaniment, weak tea, with perhaps a little sugar, milk, or spirits, is universally drunk. Tea is regarded in England, and even in Ireland, as quite as indispensable as coffee in Germany, and where no tea is used, the bitterest poverty reigns. But all this presupposes that the workman has work. When he has none, he is wholly at the mercy of accident, and eats what is given him, what he can beg or steal. And if he gets nothing, he simply starves, as we have seen. The quantity of food varies, of course, like its quality, according to the rate of wages, so that among ill-paid workers, even if they have no large families, hunger prevails in spite of full and regular work, and the number of the ill-paid is very large. Especially in London, where the competition of the workers rises with the increase of population, this class is very numerous, but it is to be found in other towns as well. In these cases all sorts of devices are used, potato parings, vegetable refuse, and rotten vegetables are eaten for want of other food, and everything greedily gathered up which may possibly contain an atom of nourishment. And if the week's wages are used up before the end of the week, it often enough happens that in the closing days the family gets only as much food, if any, as is barely sufficient to keep off starvation. Of course such a way of living unavoidably engenders a multitude of diseases, and when these appear, when the father from whose work the family is chiefly supported, whose physical exertion most demands nourishment, and who therefore first succumbs, when the father is utterly disabled, then misery reaches its height, and then the brutality with which society abandons its members, just when their need is greatest, comes out fully into the light of day. To sum up briefly the facts thus far cited, the great towns are chiefly inhabited by working people, since in the best case there is one bourgeois for two workers, often for three, here and there for four. These workers have no property whatsoever of their own, and live wholly upon wages which usually go from hand to mouth. Society, composed wholly of atoms, does not trouble itself about them, leaves them to care for themselves and their families, yet supplies them no means of doing this in an efficient and permanent manner. Every working man, even the best, is therefore constantly exposed to loss of work and food, that is, to death by starvation, and many perish in this way. The dwellings of the workers are everywhere badly planned, badly built, and kept in the worst condition, badly ventilated, damp, and unwholesome. The inhabitants are confined to the smallest possible space, and at least one family usually sleeps in each room. The interior arrangement of the dwellings is poverty-stricken in various degrees, down to the utter absence of even the most necessary furniture. The clothing of the workers, too, is generally scanty, and that of great multitudes is in rags. The food is, in general, bad, almost unfit for use, and in many cases, at least at times, insufficient in quantity, so that in extreme cases death by starvation results. Thus the working class of the great cities offers a graduated scale of conditions in life, in the best cases a temporarily endurable existence for hard work and good wages, good and endurable, that is, from the worker's standpoint, in the worst cases bitter want, reaching even homelessness and death by starvation. 
the average is much nearer the worst case than the best and this series does not fall into fixed classes so that one can say this fraction of the working class is well off has always been so and remains so if that is the case here and there if single branches of work have in general an advantage over others yet the condition of the workers in each branch is subject to such great fluctuations that a single working-man may be so placed as to pass through the whole range from comparative comfort to the extremest need even to death by starvation while almost every english working-man can tell a tale of marked changes of fortune let us examine the causes of this somewhat more closely End of chapter two